right, Romans chapter 4 tonight, Romans chapter 4, we'll be looking at an interesting text and uh, I believe that we'll have some good insight into this and so let me get my uh, iPad up here, uh, looking at God's record. You know, I find it interesting here as we want to read on down through and, uh, you know, something that I believe that a lot of us miss out on. Uh, though not intentionally, but uh, one of the words that sticks out to me as I read down through the book of Romans, and especially Romans chapter 4, over and over again I see the word promise, and it's not really mentioned more than some of the other words like imputed and uh, reckoned or counted or something like that, all, all accounting terms, but it's the word promise. And the word promise is the one that sticks out to me. I always love a promise. It used to be uh, years ago when I was into hunting and fishing and all those kind of things and uh, camping and what have you, I used to look forward to going out camping. And, and my step family over in Altoona, Pennsylvania, what they would do is they would uh, get all these trees and they would lay them down in the yard and they would tell me, they said, now you, you got to cut down all of this wood. And if you go down all of this wood, then you're able to go ca- uh, camping. And so I would just I mean, I would take that mall, and I would just go to town, and I probably had muscles back then that I don't have today, but anyway, I was able to stack up tons and tons of wood that we take out camping with us, and I always look forward to that and for those promises, and, and uh, here in the Word of God, there are some precious promises for, for us to take into account, and so God's record, Romans chapter 4, verse 1, we'll read down to verse 17. It says, what shall we say then? Uh, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. Uh, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness." Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, over and over again, you see the word impute. That's not something to get uh, all bent out of shape over. Again, that's just an accounting term. It's just to uh, put things in the right account. You know, if you sin, uh, there the sin can be held against you, but in, in God's governance there you know of course um, if you're counting on God's precious gift of salvation his blood covers all of your sins and it puts us back into positive account over there so that's what it's talking about but again verse 8 the blessed is the man to whom the Lord would not impute sin come of this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also so he's trying to bring us all in one account to the Jew and to the Greek also it's putting us together uh, blessed uh, come to this blessed then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness how was it then reckoned uh, when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision not in un- not in circumcision but in uncircumcision so in other words before the promise before the sign of the covenant was given and he received the sign of circumcision to seal the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. I'm sure that really got the Jews' attention because they were all about that circumcision. But he said, no, no, the, the righteousness was accounted even before all that came to pass. Verse 12, uh, and the father of the circumcision to them, uh, to, to them who are not of the circumcision only, 
but who also walks in the step of faith of our father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. Again, he's just trying to negate the law. It wasn't, wasn't circumcision. The argument here is not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And for if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, but that where no law is, there is no transgression. And therefore it's of faith that it might be by grace, to the end of the promise might be sure to all see, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the heir of us all. And verse 17 is the last. It says, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him, and if, again, many nations, the Jews, the Israelites, were all about, no, it's, it's all through us, it's all through Israel, it's all through our, our inheritance. But it's, no, it's the father of many nations, not just to the Jews, but to everybody. Father of many nations before him, uh, whom he hath believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Let's pray as we get into the Word of God for t- tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray would just give me clarity of thought and speech. and uh, Lord, may we rejoice in the promises of God, knowing that uh, they are available to all who we just call upon you for. And Lord, I pray that we just help us to uh, really believe in you. Uh, well, this is what it's all about. So many people in the world today who have no idea who you are, what you even promised. They've never really read your word through, and they're missing out on these promises that you have available to us. So, Lord, when you say things in your word, we need to believe them. And I pray, I pray that you would just cause us, Lord, that you would just open our hearts and minds that we might believe, that we might believe in your word, that we might trust in your word, that we might walk in it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's a good commentary out there today, and it's one that sits on my bookshelf. Uh, A preacher of years gone by, his name is Dr. Barnhouse, and some of you might know who he is. But Dr. Barnhouse says this, he says, Years ago I was speaking with a man about his soul. The conversation had gone for some time, and that man seemed to be in total darkness. All that I would say to him failed to penetrate the murk of his fallen spirit. And finally he said to me, What does God want? Dr. Barnhouse replied to the man, he says, God wants to be believed. More than anything else, God want, uh, wants to be believed. But if you, if, if you sandpaper your life down until you have taken off the surface roughness and still do not believe him, he will have to cast you into outer darkness. But if you understand that he longs and yearns with deep desire that men should simply take him at his word and believe what he says, then he is satisfied to completion and will declare you as righteous as himself. God wants to be believed. And I mean, as dogmatically as I possibly can tonight, I believe that this really sums up the whole passage of Scripture. If we would close the book tonight, we understand that God wants us just to simply believe on all of his promises. When he says that he sent his son to the cross to die for our sins, he simply wants to be believed. When he says that, uh, you know, anything that he writes here within the word of God, everything concerning himself or anything concerning man, he just wants to be believed. And all that it requires for us is say, God, yes, what you say is right, what you say is true. And to simply put our faith and trust in him. For anyone who believes God for salvation, I say amen. And praise the Lord for that. And as it gets, you know, to us, we make things complicated when it doesn't have to be complicated. 
I th- think of those who are four, five, six years old who are calling upon the name of the Savior and their lives totally transformed and changed even at that young age. And God can do an incredible work in our hearts and lives. Salvation is just a foundation, though. It goes beyond that goes beyond just the salvation. Thank God, again, thank God for those who believe and are saved, but beyond that, we still need to believe God, don't we? we got to believe Him for our finances. we got to believe Him for our families. we got to believe Him for so much more than that. We love quoting Proverbs chapter 3, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your path. By the way, that's a promise. And the Bible says after that, he says, Be not wise, and I know not fear the Lord, and depart from evil. But simply right after that, not only does God promise to direct our paths, but when it comes to the area of our finances, guess what God says? God says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of thy, all thine increase. In other words, he's calling for us to trust God with our finances. We've got to trust God, I mean, just at a young age, remember... Uh, thinking myself, you know, there's no, uh, before, before I went to Bible college, I, I was looking at I was saved. And I was thinking to myself, there, there's no godly women out here. I don't know where I'm going to find a wife. I mean, look at the world around us. I mean, in the church I was at, there was no options. You know what I mean? And I was thinking to myself, there, there's no possible way. I mean, this just seems unreal. How, how am I going to find a wife that describes like what the Bible says? And I went to Bible college and I found out God has an answer for that. All through the Bible, we, we just got to take him at his word. Believe him for your wife, believe him for your children, believe him for your home, for your health, for your future, everything. Everything that God asks of us, we need to believe in him for it. That's why the Bible says, love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind, all your strength, all your, all your soul. Every bit of our lives, we got to say every single day, every single minute, every single second of the fact that God, I can't control tomorrow, I can't control my life, I can't control my circumstances, but I'll believe you. Whatever you say your word, that's what I want to do. And I want to walk by faith. It was a rarity when I was younger. Uh, I, I just bring this up on the fact that when I was engaged and I was going up to meet my in-laws for the very first time, what would be my in-laws, they took me out to a steakhouse, and they didn't know who I, I was. They figured that all men, real men, love steaks. I... Uh, uh, I had never been to a steakhouse other than two other times in my life. I was 30 years of age at this point. Two times. Uh, when I was growing up, we never went out to eat. It was a rarity. And uh, our, our fancy meals was Denny's. You know what I mean? Uh, we thought we were high-class living when we went to Denny's, and, and we just didn't go to these other places. And so I remember uh, on some occasions where we would go out to eat, my stepdaddy would tell us this. He says, now, did you bring any cash with you? And I would look at him as just in amazement. What do you mean, bring any cash? You know I'm a kid. I don't have any money with me. You bring any cash with you? You don't, you don't have any money with you. They got some aprons that's on the back wall of this restaurant, and they got a dishwasher out there. They got a job for you to do. And, and if you were to eat here, you, then you've got to be ready to go and wash some dishes. I didn't know whether to believe them or not. I was kind of worried. I didn't want to go out to eat after that. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, we can, we can believe God. The Bible tells us that for all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him amen unto the glory of God by, by us. We can take all of His promises to the bank. The problem with many of the Jews during this time is they could quote the verses forwards and backwards. But they didn't know how to account for the promises. They could talk about Abraham. They knew of, of all the stories. Of course, they knew the Torah 
they, they knew everything that they said concerning their lineage, where they come from, and how Abraham was called out of the earth of the Chaldees, and how God had promised them, and how he was going to give them a land, and how he was going to make a seed, as many as the stars, and as many, much as the sand of the seashore. They could tell you all about David and how he was a, a, a man whom God would reveal that he was going to have a, a throne, a throne that was going to be to, to many that would follow after them, and uh, he would give to them the sure mercies of David. They had promises to Abraham and promises to David and had promises to the children of Israel. They were counting in those promises, but yet they were still working, trying to work to gain God's favor. They had no idea that Abraham couldn't do what they were doing. Abraham wasn't trying to fulfill the law. Abraham was before the law. They had no idea, according to uh, Psalm 32, that as the Bible tells us here in verse 8, I believe it is, blesses the man whom the Lord would not impute sin. They had no idea what that meant. I mean, they were just quoting the verses. They thought that because they were the children, because they were trying to do the law, that they would already be forgiven. But no, that's, that's not what David did. That's not how David understood it. And so Paul is bringing them back into the Scriptures, trying to correct their theology and pointing them over to Jesus. This is what he's trying to do, bringing them back to the Old Testament. This is Paul. Paul is famous for this and trying to bring them back. Romans chapter 1, creation. Romans chapter 2, law. Romans chapter 3, sin. Romans chapter 4, promise. And over and over again, trying to use their own Scriptures to convince them of the fact that they... They needed to be saved, poking holes in their own theology, and their own understanding. And again, five times in Romans chapter 4, he points to the promise. Paul already mentioned their advantages in Romans chapter 3. Where they had this question, Paul anticipating, he says, uh, uh, what, then has a, what advantage has the Jews? He says, much in every way, you had the oracles of God. And so he reasoned through the oracles, the Bible, the scriptures. But now he goes beyond that from the oracles of God, from the scriptures, and he points them over to Abraham and to David, again pointing out these, these promises, these privileges, these things that God had promised to the children of Israel, and showing them where their error was. Their heritage became the, the obstacle, the stumbling block again to their, uh, stumbling block to their faith. And over and over again throughout Israel's history, this, this was a known problem, a known problem. You see, because they, they had a habit of trusting in, and I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again just so you can get the picture of how, like, when Eli and his sons, Eli's sons would take that Ark of the Covenant into the battle against the Philistines over 1 Samuel chapter 4, and they thought because they had the Ark of the Covenant into the battle that God would in no way cause them to be defeated. Why? Because they had the Ark of the Covenant. They thought because... Uh, uh, you know, when we're thinking about going into the, the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, they thought because they were Israel, because the temple was standing in Jerusalem, there's no way that God is going to let anybody come, the Chaldeans, much less anybody else, the Assyrians, come into the walls of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Why? They are the people of God. They have the temple of God. They listen to all their false prophets and say, no, 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 no. We have the temple. We have the oracles. We have the right blood, we have the, we're the right people, we have all these things, we have the law. There is no way that God is going to destroy us. And sure enough, God allowed to be chastised, leveled that building to the ground, and still showed himself faithful without Jerusalem being in the way. 
And so they stumbled at their birthrights, their special rights and privileges inherited in their natural birthright. And by the way, there's many that are doing it today. And I've, I've talked to people over and over again where they say, well, you, you know, uh, our, our fathers, our mothers, our grandfathers, our forefathers, all the way back to the second, third, fourth generation, they've always been Lutheran. We've lived Lutheran. We die Lutheran. There's no way we're going to be anything else other than Lutheran. And you can't reason with them out of the Scriptures because they're trusting in the fact of their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. I had a grandfather all the way back in the Civil War. I don't know how far back in the lineage it goes, but he was, a, he, he was an evangelical Lutheran, whatever that means. But I thank God that I found the truth in the Scriptures. There's many people that are counting in their Catholic heritage. And say, well, we've always been Catholic all the way back before, before Peter was a pope. That's what they'll say. <laughs> we, were, we were Catholic even before Peter. No, they, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, he was never the pope. That's right. But they're counting on all these things, thinking that they're safe because of who their great, 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 great grandfather was. And that was the mistake that they, they were making during this period of time. So he has to break down, again, break down these barriers. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing how people trust in those things, and yet it's empty. They, they were proud of their physical descent from Abraham. And they were also proud of the promises made to David. So they were counting on their Abrahamic promises and to the, uh, to the Davidic promises. Abraham, the friend of God, and David, the sure mercies of David. By the way, why would he point out Abraham and David? I mean, not only were the, the most famous pe- people in all of Israel's history, not only were they the people that, that they were proud of, Abraham is our father, Abraham was a friend of God, David was given the sure mercies of David, he was the first king, even though Saul was the first king, they, they kind of wiped Saul out, you know what I mean? But why would he point out Abraham, why would he point out David? What's the gospel based off of? Faith, repentance. Faith and repentance. Abraham's faith, David's repentance. This is what he points to. So Paul will point out, number one, that David made no intrinsic righteousness at all of his own self. You look at Abraham's life, there was nothing about his life that said, you know what, this guy was a perfect guy. I mean, he, did, he could do no wrong. We looked at his life and we could, we could see that, yeah, there, there were some things that he was guilty of. We can look at David's life and we say, that was glaringly obvious. There were some things he did wrong. He wants to shut the mouths of all those who were trusting in the law and trusting in their own self-righteousness. And so improving, uh, improving his, uh, the fact that Abraham was not declared righteous because of the law, not declared righteous because of the seal of circumcision, not declared righteous because of his own works. He could shut their mouths and, and the fact that they were trusting in all these things. They couldn't boast in their own righteousness. If Abraham couldn't, then they couldn't. And if he shows that Abraham was not saved by works, he demonstrates his descendants couldn't be saved by works either. If he shows that the right, religious rights had nothing to do with sal- the salvation of Abraham, then they couldn't trust in their own religious rights. I, I hated to put this in here because I don't like quoting from John Calvin. I never have up until this point in time in my ministry. But once in a while, even a blind squirrel can find a nut. You know what I mean? John Calvin says this, he says, Since it is then evident that Abraham was justified freely, his posterity, who claimed the righteousness of their own by the law, ought to have been made silent 
even through Shechem. Because Abraham couldn't declare his righteousness through the law. They couldn't either, in other words. And in order to silence their mouths, the Bible says in verse 3 of our text, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Uh, we need to plant a flag right here in the promises of God. You know, people would, back in the day, they would plant flags when they would go into a new territory, the new war, world. They planted a flag. This, this place belongs to Britain. This place belongs to these people. They would plant a flag. And that's what we need to do when it comes to the promises of God. Over and over again through the World War II, when we see the Allied forces that were going through Europe, they would plant a flag in all the places they had taken. It meant conquest. It meant this is our place. This is where we stand. This is where we rule. This is where our territory. Our territory is in the territory that Christ has already conquered and defeated. We declare ourselves citizens of his promises, of his estate. The promises of God are before us, and we must take our faith at the promises of God. I don't have any point. I was telling Sarah coming down the road, this is unusual. Normally, I try to have two, three, four, five, 20 points, something like that. I only have this one point tonight. We just got to believe God when he makes us promise. Again, these two examples of Israel, uh, as faith, their history. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Abraham, and they're talking about David here. These two people are the ones that Paul is going to go through and point out where, where they had trusted God and how God had um, blessed them and how God had given them promise and how God had given them righteousness and how he had forgiven their sins and all these things. Even after committing such great wickedness as David committed, and yet God was able to say, you know, your sins are not imputed against you. Your sins are not held against you. I mean, it would have to blow the minds of anybody. What do you mean, David? Look, look he, he, had, he had committed sin with Bathsheba. He had killed Uriah, and he had did all these awful things. He had stood and numbered the people. What do you mean? That God could just gloss over it. It wasn't that he just simply glossed over it. He just didn't hold it accountable. God would deal with his sins in his own ways. But yet he was still righteous before God. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But justification must not only declare someone righteous, but it also must show how his sins are forgiven. And again, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance we find here throughout uh, these two characters. You know, if we could look over the shoulder of the Lord tonight, before salvation, we recognize from the book of Revelation that one day at the great white throne judgment, God has these books that he's going to open. And we just glance over the shoulder of the Lord and we see account of everything that he's taken account of of our lives. Those thoughts, those deeds, those works that we've done, those lies, those times that we've broken God's law, if we could look over the shoulder of the Lord of everything that he's taken account of, we could realize that we are in serious trouble. We could see that, number one, that there's just something within our nature. We're just prone to sin. Number two, we're guilty of those sins. We've made those sins by choice, and we're looking over and saying, man, that is awful. There's not a single one of those that can be taken out because God keeps a record of every single one of these things. 
We're going to stand before God either for our sins or we'll stand before God uh, claiming the righteousness of the Savior. And hopefully we're on that camp of claiming the righteousness of the Savior. But if we just simply look at those sins that we've committed, I, I would say we are in big trouble. The odds are stacked against us. There's no way that anybody's going to be declared righteous on account of that. All the liabilities, there's nothing but liabilities that are stacked against us. There's no assets, nothing good. Although there are a lot of people that say, look at all these good things that I've done. There's no good on this side because of all of our righteousness. We think that we're counting on all of the Bible says that all that is filthy rags. And they don't go to, to the, our good doesn't outweigh our bad on account of it. You just see that, that we have done nothing but wrong against a thrice holy God, and we are in big trouble. But again, the Bible tells us in verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord would not impute sin. And that shows us that sin can be imputed. And again, the words not just imputed, but counted, credited, reckoned. All of those are saying the same thing, just evening out the account. And if all, all of it there is, it's just our sins being imputed or held against us. If all we are doing is looking at our sins and there's nothing to wipe it out to declare that, that we've been made righteous, we're on the good side. And all we can say is, Lord, yes, I'm guilty. We need something to clear out that account, all those wrongs that we've committed, something that, that would just wipe all that away, and we can realize that it's not by our good, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's got to be something that takes that penalty all away. So we look at the life of Abraham, and we see that there's no effort in the Bible to hide over Abraham's sins. We can look at where God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he told him, he says, what I want you to do, I want you to get out of your country, away from your kindred, and away from your father's house, and unto a land that I'm going to show you, Abraham. Very first thing that God shows him, and what does he do? He goes out, yes, he does leave his, his father's house, but he brings his father with him. Abraham, did you really follow God's will? He said, away from Away from your father's house, but you bring, you say, yeah, technically you did leave, but you brought your father with you. You brought your nephew Lot with you. It goes in, and shortly after that, we find that uh, uh, on two different occasions, he goes down to Egypt because of famine in the land. After he gets down into the promised land of the Canaan, and God promises to give them the land. And next thing you know, he's going down into Egypt because of the famine that's in the land. He's hoping to get some relief. And he makes this deal with his wife, Sarah. And he says, you know, if anybody asks, you just tell them you're my sister. He's willing to sacrifice her honor in order to save his own life. Now, that's slow down, isn't it? I, my wife wouldn't even do that. You know what I mean? We look at some of the things in Abraham's life and we say, Abraham, you're not above par. And God doesn't gloss over the fact of, of the sin and the life of his chosen people for his purposes, for whatever cause it is. These men are liars like Abraham. They're cheats like Jacob. They're murderers like Moses. They've committed adultery like David. The Bible doesn't take any of those things out. Lays it open and bare before us all. God doesn't hide those sins. But it lays it open for us to see. Abraham was told, to, again, to get thee out of that country, and yet he is taking his father with him. He, he, he puts his wife in danger to some aspect. When God tells him, he says, you're going to have a son, and he goes and he uh, has relations with Hagar and does have a son, but not according to the way that God would have him to do it. That's not 
necessarily what God asked him to do. And if truth be told, Abraham was not Abraham was not and could not be declared righteous on account of his works. His works were faulty. And his faith, his faith was the basis and the ground of his salvation. And furthermore, when we go down, we're, we're quoting again from Romans 4, 3. And it says, that for, for what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Where does that come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 6. What did Abraham believe? During this time, God spoke to Abraham. Says, I want to be thy shield and exceeding great reward. Fear not, Abraham, I'll be thy, thy shield. I'll be thy exceeding great reward. I'll, I'll, I'll bless you. I'll give you seed. And, uh, and that servant of yours, Eliezer, he's not going to be your heir. Because Abraham does ask, well, who's going to be my heir? Eliezer, uh, he's the only servant in my house. I guess he's the heir. God says, no. He's going to come out of the fruit of thy loins. Abraham, I want to give you this land. God promised them all these things before they even took place, and, and they didn't have anything to, uh, to, to really trust, I mean, to, to really stake that in, you know, before that period of time, you know, he, he was still old. He had no land. He had no son. And basically all he could do was take God at his word. The Bible tells us there that in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God that it was counted to him for righteousness. Not because of what he saw, not because of what had been given to them, but because of just believing in what God, God promised, that he would give these things to Abraham, that he would do these things for Abraham. And he says, Abraham, if you just believe me, they're yours. And Abraham just simply believed God. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't do anything. He didn't work for it. Truth be told, he didn't really ask for it. Again, Isaac was not born until later. Abraham believed before Isaac was even a reality. Hence, Paul continues on in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through, through 22, and he begins to lay this out, and he begins to talk about, uh, again, he says, For God who quickened the dead and called those things which be not as though they were, verse 18, who against hope believed and hoped that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be, and being not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God though through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that he had also promised that he was able, to, able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. No works, no law. Again, all this before the law, all this before circumcision, this was all before everything that the Jews were trusting in. They had nothing to glory in. You can imagine how deflating this was to the children of Israel. They couldn't boast of anything. God's accounting system wasn't built around Abraham's works. It was built on his promises. Abraham found absolutely nothing before God that he could merit righteousness or salvation. And then suddenly we note that because he believed God, God said, you're righteous. There was something reckoned 
to his account. There was some reconciliation going on. There was a credit that was applied to his account. And though through Abraham and his seed, uh, to whom all the promises were given, would come the son of promise, Jesus Christ. And we recognize that because of the promise of, you know, given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it was passed all the way down through, through the bloodline of David, all the way down to Mary and to Joseph, Jesus would come. Of course, Joseph was not the Lord's earthly father. God was. But he was the son of promise. Born of Jewish descent, born in the land of Israel. The Son of God, likewise the Son of Man, would offer His life upon Mount Calvary for the sins of the people, and God would not stay His hand. Just like I talked about when Abraham would go up and he would bring his son Isaac, he'd offer him upon the altar where God told him, he says, Now, Abraham, don't, you know, don't kill him. Because I see that you've withheld nothing from me. But we recognize that God would not stay his hand from his son, but would allow it to come down upon him for the sins of the people. Jesus would rise again from the grave, just like Abraham was trusting in. Jesus was the promise referred to, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we could sing as a hymn writer would say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. This is really what it's coming down to. I love the book of Philemon where Paul sees this guy by the name of uh, Onesimus. And Onesimus is a runaway slave. He's guilty of the crimes, and he comes and he finds Paul in a Roman prison. If you look at how far he had to go to get, even get to uh, Rome or even get to where Paul was, but he got to Paul and he heard the gospel and he got saved by the grace of God. He became profitable for Paul, but yet he recognized he's got to go back to, to Philemon. And he sends, sends Onesimus back to Philemon and he writes a letter and he says, uh, he says this. He says, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or owed thee aught, put thy, that to mine account. That's what happened with Jesus. <laughs> Anything that we've done, Jesus says, Apply my blood, put that to mine account. I think of uh, Mephibosheth. David made a promise to, to his friend, Jonathan. And he says, I, you know, if, I want to take care of your seed, in other words. After Jonathan died on the battlefield, David was looking around for anything that he could show kindness. He says, can I show kindness to anybody? Is there any left of the house of Jonathan? And they found Mephibosheth. Man who was lame, nothing. He appears before David. He says, uh, "What do you have to do with me? I'm, what, I'm just like a flea. I'm like a dead dog. I'm, I'm a nothing to you. What are you you're here to kill me?" David said, "I'm not here to kill you. I want to make you as one of my sons, and you want to sit and eat at the king's table." It's really amazing what God would do for us. We understand Genesis 15 that God would give a son. That's what He's pointed at Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to give a son. And this son is going to go to the cross. This son will die. This son, his blood will be shed. This son is a son of promise. This son is to whom all the blessings would flow. He would give a son. And Abraham believed God. Years ago, there was a wealthy man. And he had a son. And they were into this fine art. I mean, they really loved it. They would go around the world and they would collect these great art pieces. You think of Van Gogh. 
still to this day don't understand the guy that lost his ear, and yet that painting is sold for millions of dollars. Uh, Van Gogh, Picasso, the guy that painted all this funky art with the clocks that are looking all kinds of weird and that kind of stuff. Monet, the guy who does the water lilies and the, the realistic kind of art. They would go around and collect all this art and they would put it on the, uh, all around their house and just admire it. And this is something that they really love to do. They were art collectors. I'm not talking about Hunter Biden either, by the way. But as winter approached, the war engulfed the nation, and his son went off to war and to serve his country. And as he was out in war, uh, over the process of time, he, he did stopped hearing from his son. He wasn't getting any communication, and he began to worry. And his worst fears came to pass, and he recognized that his son had died on the battlefield trying to save the life of, of one of his fellow soldiers. And he was wounded and died. And he got the news, and he was distraught and lonely, and one of the soldiers came after the war, to appear before this man on Christmas Day, and he said, Sir, I know you don't know me, but I'm the soldier your son saved on the battlefield. And he said, He told many of us there about how you guys loved art and about how you collected this art. And he says, I'm an artist, and I have drawn this picture of you, a portrait of your son. And he presented it to the, the elderly man at this point, and he was just overwhelmed with tears, though he was. This was not a painting that would be at any value to some art museum or anything like this. The guy says, I want to make this front side. I want to put it over my fireplace and look at it every day. It meant a lot to him. The previous year, he got sick, fell ill, and he died. Before that, he had put some provisions in place in his will. And uh, they began to do an art sale during this time. And many of the, the, the fancy art people, you know, they show up and try to do this auction. And the auctioneer gets up and he begins to... And go through the, he says, this is what we're going to do. The guy uh, whom this estate belongs to, he told me, he says, we, we got to start with this portrait of his son. This portrait of his son. The people there were upset. So this, this is not anything that's listed on any art museum. This is not a prize to be won. This is nothing to this. Don't, don't put it, I mean, we want to see the other paintings. So no, no, it's, it's part of the will that this must go first. They began to do the auction. They said, who's going to start the bid at 100 pounds? And nobody raised their hands. I mean, it was nothing for them. I mean, they didn't even like the piece of art. Who's going to give me 100 pounds? Nobody. Who's going to give 50 pounds? Nobody. And finally, the next door neighbor who knew how much this guy loved his son he said, can I give you? 10 pounds for this, 10 pounds, 10 pounds, and he gives it. And it says, the auction's done. The auction's over. Who has the son has everything. And we have the son, we have everything. All the promises of him, again, in him are yea and amen. And it's really, really amazing. It really hits home to the point of, what we're dealing with tonight. Abraham believed God, and so God put it to his own accounting uh, for righteousness. It was accounted, reckoned, credited, imputed to the account of Abraham. Understand that so this was not just some reward. It wasn't just say, y'all, you know, I like Abraham. I'm going to reward him. No, rewards are for works. This was not some reward. This was, faith was the condition, not the grounds of salvation. Faith is the condition for salvation. You must believe, trust is man's answer to God's truth. And so, number one, we see faith, and, and then we see righteous uh, repentance. Let's go over to Psalm 32 for just a moment. Psalm 32. 
I want to close just very shortly, but Psalm 32. I want us to look at this verse 8 in Romans uh, Romans 4, but Psalm 32, where Paul is quoting from. Psalm 32. This is David and his repentance. But I want you to pay attention whether it says anything of the law, anything of works, anything of circumcision, anything of merit. As I read this, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Notice verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Wait a minute, David. What about the law? Where's the blood? Wait a minute, David, what about the works? Wait a minute, David, what about the circumcision? What about your bloodline, David? He doesn't say any of that. He says, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I'll confess my transgressions unto the Lord, thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Why? Because he acknowledged it. And it says in verse 6, For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in the time when thou mayest be found. Truly in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. It's amazing that we see there, again, faith, repentance, faith, repentance. We've got to recognize, yes, we are sinners. We, we are guilty. We've got to confess that. But we also believe that God did something years ago to take care of those sins. And I'm believing in those promises. It's because of what Christ did, not because of what I did, because of what Christ did, that I'm declared righteous. I don't, I, don't, I don't negate the fact that I am guilty. I just say that because of what Christ did, it cancels it all, takes it all out the way. I think of assurance of salvation for just a moment. You think of a man, sometimes people struggle with, with uh, this area of salvation. There was this guy, he was acquitted of a crime. This is a hypothetical, but this didn't really happen. Suppose a man acquitted of a crime before the court of law, and he says, you're not guilty. And he shows up the very next week, and he says, you know, Your Honor, he says, I I feel guilty as can be. I I, I know that I'm not the best man in the world. I feel guilty. And he says, what are you doing here? I mean, the, the crime is, I mean, we've already settled this. You've been declared not guilty. I don't care how you feel. <laughs> doesn't matter how you feel. You're declared not guilty. It's not based on your feelings. It's based on what God declares. We don't convict people for their feelings. We convict them for crimes. And he can say to that person, you've been acquitted. I'll close with this. Thomas Bradbury I was finding in all the places where a man is justified in Scripture. But he says this, We may conclude that the believer is justified in the sovereignty of God, who holy because of his will. He says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elected? It's God that justifies. So we're justified without 
cause in, in us by his grace. It's being justified freely by his grace through a redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're justified meritoriously by the virtue of the blood. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. We're justified impute, imputatively, in other words, imputation from our text. Through Christ's obedience, he says, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We're justified authoritatively by the resurrection. He was raised again for our justification. We're justified efficaciously through the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Justified experimentally by faith of the Lord Jesus. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. And then the eighth thing that he points to, he says, our justification is to be found in our works as we read, yea, see then how that a man is justified, uh, that, that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Talk about how Abraham uh, was justified not just by his belief, but uh, by the works that was there in James, the faith associated by the works that followed. One day in 1909, a group of Alaskan miners called the Sourdoughs were sitting in a saloon in Fairbanks, we're talking about outsiders such as Dr. Frederick Cook climbing Mount Kinley. Convinced that Cook's ascent had never been made, some of the miners decided to prove it was the only way uh, they knew how, knew how by doing it themselves. They would climb up this uh, Mount McKinley and they would try to find out whether what he said was really true or not. So they began to climb this mound of descent and with all their, their thermoses of hot chocolate and everything, they began to climb up and they found uh, the, the flagpole that he had talked about, and sure enough, where that flag stood, they see that his claims were true. Nobody believed him, and nobody could see the flagpole, but he knew that it was true. In June 1913, when some professional climbers reached the summit, to their surprise, they found that flagpole planted by the sourdoughs. People may not believe us, but let them see the flag that we've planted by faith in the promises of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son. We praise you and we thank you. We realize that salvation is not because of anything that we've done, but wholly on account of everything that you've done for us. And may we not only just trust the promises of salvation, but every promise that uh, is associated with our sanctification and our living while we're here in this present world. As we look forward to that blessed coming and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, may we continue to live by faith, believing in all the promises that you have for us in scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Hymn number, uh, was it 119, 112? Hymn number 112, The Old Rugged Cross.